A few years ago, I was at a conference in London where a number of Christians from different countries were talking about Christian involvement in business in various countries of the world. And at the end of the day, a number of us who were involved in speaking at that conference were sitting around, and one couple from Kenya was there who had been quite successful in a business adventure, business venture they had started. And there was silence in the conversation, and uh, the wife from that couple named Connie turned to me, and she said, Wayne, why is Africa so poor? Before I could recover from that question, she said, are we under a curse? And to be honest, I was dumbfounded. I tried to think quickly why some, what some reasons would be why Africa was poor, and I, I honestly couldn't think of anything worthwhile to say, and I had to say to her, Connie, I don't know. But as sometimes happens, that one-minute conversation set me on a course of investigation trying to figure out why Africa was so poor. I later found out that Africa has 13% of the world's population. It has 18% of the world's land mass and incredible natural resources. But it produces 1% of the world's gross domestic product or the world's, world's total economic production. Why? I didn't know. I began to read, and I learned various things from a number of books, but more than anything, I learned from a book called The Wealth and Poverty of Nations by a retired Harvard professor of economic history named David Landis. I don't believe he's a Christian. He gives no indication of personal faith in the book. But this is essentially the culmination of his life work as an expert in the economic development of various regions of the world. It's fascinating. It traces the last 500 years of world history. He talks about Northern Europe and the influence of Martin Luther and the Reformation. He talks about Southern Europe and how Southern Europe, which was Roman Catholic, that is Greece, not Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal. Greece was Orthodox, leave that. It's Eastern Europe. Um, Italy, Spain, Portugal untouched by the Reformation largely, had a different course of economic development and lagged behind Northern Europe. But the Reformation, influencing Germany, Scandinavia, England, transformed much of their economy. Then he goes through Eastern Europe and talks about what happened in their development. Talks, goes through Russia and the history of what happened in economic development for 500 years in Russia. He goes over to the Far East and talks about China and what happened in its economic course of progress over 500 years. He goes to Japan and traces its economic progress. He traces the rest of Southeast Asia. He turns to the Muslim world and says, what happens to Muslim nations? He goes to Sub-Saharan Africa and talks about African nations. He looks at North America and its economic development. He looks at South America and its economic development. Every aspect of, every aspect of the economic development of these various regions of the world, he takes one at a time, and he says, here's what happened. Here are the inventions. Here are the economic systems they had. Here are the governments governmental systems, and here's why they grew economically, or here's why they remained poor. As I began reading through this book, more and more it seemed to me that the principles that led to economic development in nation after nation were consistent with the principles that I already knew from the Bible, having to do with productivity, work, ownership of property, uh, rule of law, and other things like that. And in fact, in one place, David Landis says, he, 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 he doesn't, as I say, profess a Christian faith, but he said, Martin Luther and the Reformation principles 
that Martin Luther began to teach and other Protestants after him, starting in 1517 when the Reformation began in Germany and then spread throughout much of northern Europe. He said those principles created a new kind of society and a new kind of man, a new kind of economic man where the expectations of economic development, inventiveness, productivity, thrift, responsibility in work, seeing work as a calling from God, and many other factors transformed the economic development of society and um, nothing like it had been seen through whole societies in the history of the world before and it led to remarkable economic development. We look around the world today and we say, well, we see rich nations and we see poor nations. How did they get that way? I didn't know. I didn't know what had happened to Africa and I didn't know why Africa remained poor. But I think I know now. I think I understand. And that's led to um, a lecture or a series of lectures that my friend Barry Asmus, an economist who goes to Scottsdale Bible Church with me, he and I have gone to a number of countries of the world and presented this in a nine-hour seminar that I'm going to condense into one hour for you tonight, I hope. But just to set the historical background, what we find is from ancient history on to about 1550 or so, there was essentially no economic development in terms of increasing wealth. The amount of goods or homes that people had to live in, food they ate, clothing they wore, remained about the same. And so your, your, your great-grandfather and your, father, your grandfather and your father and you all worked at the same farm, raised the same kind of crops, milked the same kind of cows had the same kind of clothing, lived in the same kind of house, and there wasn't much of anything in terms of economic development. And then economic development began to percolate in about 15, the 1550 to 1750. There was a slow and beginning, uh, more rapid economic development. And then, beginning 1750 to 1770, uh, there was a rapid increase. So, in 1750, before this rapid increase began, the ratio of rich to poor countries is about five to one. That is, the poorest people in the world, compared to the richest people in the world, the richest people in the world had about five times as much wealth in terms of their clothing, the food they ate, the houses they lived in, the transportation they had, and um, other things like that. Uh, It was about five to one. But today, the ratio is 400 to one. That is, average per capita income in the United States, ballpark, $40,000 per year, per person. Poorest countries of the world, $100 per year per person. So 400 to 1. And Landis says what happened is wealthy countries developed and became rich, and the poor countries didn't. Why? So that was the question I started out to try to answer. And the answer that I've come up with, and this is material that I'm just beginning to produce and and present in different forums and get feedback. I've presented it in Hungary, presented it in uh, Albania, presented it in Peru, presented it in China, presented it in England, and then a number of places in the United States. Um, it, It ends up being 50 factors. And I say in the title, 50 factors within nations that determine their wealth or poverty. What Landis says is it's not the rich nations that are causing poor nations to be poor. It's factors within the poor nations themselves that must change because nations themselves must change their cultural patterns, their governmental laws, and their economic policies so that they become self-sustaining economies. 
and begin to produce wealth for themselves. And that's the only way nations ever come out of poverty. They never come out of poverty by rich nations giving wealth to poor nations. It doesn't lead to sustained economic development. So that's why I'm titling this 50 Factors Within Nations. Within Nations. And here they are. And I'm going to go through them. I can't go through all of them. And I'm going to say at the beginning, um, there's no nation in history that has been perfect in all of these. Nations are better or worse at these factors. And, um, and so these are kind of ideal factors. And the wealthier nations of the world in England, in Northern Europe historically, and then in the United States, have manifested more of these factors than other nations. But as I go through the list, you're going to see some troubling factors that you recognize within our own nation that are hindering economic development as well. So I'm not saying this is what the United States is and everybody else should be that way. I'm saying these are factors that are characteristic of development and growth within nations historically, and they seem to me to be consistent with biblical patterns. Does that that make sense? All right, well, let's look at them. I can't look at all of them, but they're factors that contribute to economic Growth and development or remaining in poverty. Number one, under religious belief and moral standards, because I'm starting with cultural values. Number one, belief that there is a God and belief that there is moral accountability before God. This leads to honesty and care for others and reliability and diligence and care and quality in one's work. Landis says these were significant factors in, perform- in, presenting, in, um, in uh, making a new kind of economic man in the Reformation. Contrast that with cultural values that lead to sustained poverty. If you want to stay in poverty as a nation, the nation uh, has this factor, belief that there is no God and that there is no ultimate moral accountability. Example, communist nations. Communist nations that were officially atheist. But what does atheism lead to? It leads to a lack of moral accountability. It leads to dishonesty. People putting selfishness above the good of others and the good of the nation. It leads to people being untrustworthy, unreliable, lazy, careless in their work. Robbery and bribery abound. How would you like to hire people like that? No. You can see the economic harm that comes from lack of belief in God and lack of moral accountability before God. And it leads to corruption in government, business, and law, and the universities, and the press, and the society is filled with lying, deceit, and slander. Does the Bible support belief in God? Sure, I don't even need to talk about that from the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, Acts 17, Paul says to the people, the pagan philosophers in uh, Athens, he says, uh, God has fixed a day on which... He will judge the earth in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He will hold all nations accountable to his moral standards. So those are factors one and two leading to sustained economic growth or sustained poverty. I'm going over to the next page. You can read some of these other ones if you want, but I can't touch on all of them tonight. Number six is important, very important. High value placed on individual freedom in a a country that has sustained economic growth. Thinking that individuals can generally be trusted to make better decisions than anyone else about what is best for them. Versus a, a, a society that tends toward or remains in poverty, government regulation of all of life being highly valued. Because the government thinks it, can know, it knows better than stupid people how, to best, how they can best run their lives. Why does the Bible support the idea of individual freedom? 
Well, the opposite of freedom is, freedom is slavery and bondage. And you can see the evils of slavery talked about, even in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of bondage, out, out of the house of out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God brought the people of Israel out of the slavery and oppression to which they were subject in the land of Egypt to give them freedom in their own land. And when the, in the book of Judges, when the Philistines came and oppressed the people, they kept them in slavery and bondage and under suppression. But the ideal for the people of God was the year of liberty. Proclaimed liberty throughout the land and to all the inhabitants thereof, it says in the book of Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 25.11. So, um, the Bible values human liberty, human freedom of choice. Pover- impoverished countries, such as communist countries, try to micromanage everyone and take away freedom. Think of Cuba, for instance, as a communist society today. Think of North Korea today, two of the absolutely poor countries of the world where there's totalitarian rule by the government, and it traps people in poverty. Strict Islamic countries today would do that too. Think of Afghanistan under the Taliban when the Taliban was ruling it, or Iran today, or Saudi Arabia. Now they have wealth from oil, oil wealth, but that's kind of an extraneous means of wealth, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. It doesn't mean that they're becoming an economically productive country themselves. Um, uh, Landis says... China, historically, for centuries, under the emperors, the emperor ruled all of life. And so uh, that was a factor, keeping people from significant economic development for the population as a whole. And um, uh, the feudal lords and nobility in Eastern Europe uh, kept people, the peasants, in, in poverty because government was running all of life rather than giving people economic freedom. Well, on and on the historical examples can go, but individual freedom is a value that leads to economic growth in a nation. Number nine, I'm going to skip down to number nine. A value that leads to economic development in a country is honor giving to, given to developing the earth's resources wisely for the benefit of mankind, and number ten, going with it, Belief that the earth is orderly and subject to rational investigation. That means investigate. That means inventors will experiment to try to invent things out of the earth. And so the world is viewed as a place of opportunity. Why? I talked about that this morning from Genesis 1, where God told Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Or I talked about that, I guess, last night. That is, God wants us to investigate the earth and develop its resources. And... Uh, and um, uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, says the Psalms. Um, but because of that, we can use the resources of the earth with thanksgiving to God because he has put them there for us. Versus honor given to preservation of the earth's resources in their natural untouched state. A number of African tribal religions will do this. Perhaps get subsistence level living from the, uh, from the earth, but not put emphasis on development of new kinds of crops and, and new kinds of uh, agriculture, etc. And some Native American religions will do that. Don't touch the traditional ways of ancestors who will just allow nature in its undeveloped state to produce a meager amount of food for us, perhaps, but no uh, emphasis on rational investigation and development of new kinds of crops and new kinds of agriculture to make the to make the earth more productive, and certainly not in manufacturing and technology and things like that. Um, So that's number nine. Um, Number 12 is important. Time is viewed as linear. In other words, it's going someplace. What's my verse for that? All the verses in the Bible. 
because it starts with the beginning and it leads to final judgment and then eternity future. It's going from a beginning to an end. So the Bible views time as moving forward toward a goal. And that gives hope that things can be improved. The idea that we are to advance the kingdom of God lays a foundation for the fact that um, Jesus wants us to believe that our actions can influence history for good. And that leads people to think, well, perhaps I can improve the economic situation of my family or my uh, city or my nation as well. And so viewing time as linear is really important. It's the whole Bible as opposed to a number of Eastern religions that just see time as cyclical. Things repeat again and again and again, and you're reincarnated in one life after another after another. And if you don't plant your crops this season, who cares? The next season is going to come around eventually, and you can't make any change in life because time is viewed as circular and repetitive, and then people abandon hope. Number 13, connected to that... Time is viewed in productive cultures. Time is viewed as a valuable resource to be used wisely. David Landis, in his book, The Wealth and Poverty of Nations, points out how when working clocks were invented, the manufacturers of them, the high-precision clockmakers in Switzerland and elsewhere in Europe, could not keep up with the demand in Northern Europe because people wanted to be able to be more productive. And it really helps if you, ha- if, you're, if you have a factory or you have a farm and you're going to do harvesting, it really helps if all the workers show up at the same time. And it helps if you can measure the amount of output different methods produce per hour or per day. And, so, uh, and, and if you can make appointments and keep appointments and, and keep schedules, time is very valuable. Why? Well... The Bible says we are to make the best use of the time or redeem the time because the days are evil. It encourages us to put a high value on use of time versus a culture that says time is not important, it's to be endured, or it's to be used for seeking immediate pleasure. And, um, uh, and there will be fear of change and fear of new ideas, and people won't work to make things better or take risks. Very little desire for innovation in Muslim nations, for instance, Landis says, because there's tradition and there's a sense of fatalism. What Allah wills will happen, so why should I work to try to make things better? In Hinduism, there was in India a belief that if people had difficulty and labor and work was painful during the day in agriculture or factories or whatever, that was just their just desserts from how they had misbehaved in a previous life. And so it was what they deserved. So why try to improve things and make the lot of the laborer easier or try to make things more effective in terms of labor-saving devices? But he said, by contrast, in England, with a Protestant worldview and a Christian outlook on life, there was hope that things could be made better, hope for inventions, and they were continually trying to make things more uh, efficient and make uh, factories that would save, uh, save human labor and, uh, and, and lead to improvement because of this view of time and hope for change and making the best use of the time. Number 15, honor then is given to productive work in a society. Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Um, servants, uh, let's see, work heartily as serving the Lord and not man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your reward. And so 
David Landis says, Martin Luther transformed the economic life of Northern Europe because he realized that ordinary occupations were a calling from God. Landis says that Roman Catholicism that dominated Europe before the Reformation had a hindrance in terms of economic productivity because in Roman Catholicism, the highest occupation that you could be called to if you were a man was a priest and if you were a woman was a nun. And priests went to monasteries and nuns went to convents. And trust me, monasteries and convents do not contribute a lot to the productivity of an economy. They don't produce a lot of goods, in other words. They might produce a few vegetables for their own use. But these are, these are meditative and contemplative occupations, and they have value in themselves, I suppose we could say, but Landis says they don't help economically. But the brightest, best, most talented, most highly ambitious people in society were thought, well, our highest calling is to serve God in a monastery or a convent. But along comes Martin Luther and says, no, Whatever your task is, you are to work heartily as serving the Lord and not man. Whatever your ta- if you're a blacksmith, if you're a farmer, if you're a, a, a dairyman, if you're a cheesemaker, if you're a tailor, if you're a shopkeeper, do that as unto the Lord. That's your calling or your vocation from God. And that is what he calls you to do. And you're to do it to the glory of God. All of a sudden, he said, people were doing their work as if they were working for God. And it transformed people's view of work. And they took delight and joy in it and found fulfillment in ordinarily what we would call secular activities were in fact a calling from God. So now you have a society that gives honor to productive work. And the ideal work is not a lazy life. It's a productive life that benefits oneself and others. And so workers in the society then are encouraged to work as long as they're willing and able because they bring more productivity, which benefits society. And this kind of productive society says the potential for creating new jobs is unlimited due to human creativity. So this views more people as more producers. I had a sad situation when we were in England. A number of years ago, we had a friend, and he was uh, into, um, what do they call it, forced redundancy, what we would call mandatory retirement, uh, at about age, I don't know if it was 55 or 60. Let's say it was 60. Why? What did he say? He said, well, I'm retiring, and he, he had a good job. He said, I'm retiring. He was kind of wistful about it, nostalgic about it. He was healthy. He was skilled at his work. He was able to work, but he said, well, I have to move out and make room for somebody else. That mentality poisons a society. That mentality says there's a fixed number of jobs. And so if I'm holding a job, that keeps somebody else from it. But that's crazy. It's saying that a new worker can't produce, can't create a new job and make more productivity for the society. Do you see what I'm saying? As long as he's working, he is producing. And if there are other workers, well, there are other things for them to do, and they can become productive in making other things or doing other jobs because you don't think that the number of jobs in a society is fixed. But work is something that God gives us to do, and we view it positively and with honor. Versus a society that, number 15 in the middle, is not productive, views work as a necessary evil. Sadly, much of Western society is that way or work as a result of fate in some Muslim societies, or a just punishment due for deeds in a a previous life, Hinduism in India. And the ideal life, then, is thought to be a life of ease, simply enjoying oneself and one's friends, never having to work again at a productive job. Workers in the whole society are urged to retire early so others can have their jobs, which are thought to be limited in number. Number 17, economic productivity. 
A cultural value that leads to productivity in a society is the whole society honors careers that produce goods and services that have economic value. The society gives honor to economically productive people who create economic development. And hope for economic progress is focused on increasing the economic productivity of a person or nation. And so the society will honor inventors and innovators. Why do I say that's true from the Bible? I'd go back again to that column on the right where I have Genesis 1.28 where to, God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to subdue the earth and to make it productive. That is to be honored. Uh, Jesus gives the parable of the talents and the, one, the people with the talents who produced more talents, more goods, were honored. And so the blessings of God in Deuteronomy come in the productivity of the land where their crops don't fail and their cattle don't uh, have miscarriages but they don't, and they don't fail to bear, but their crops and their livestock bear abundantly. So there's productivity honored in society. Now I want to give you some example of a productive economy. And what I need here is six volunteers to come up on stage with me, and we're going to be the economy of New Mexico. Come on, just any six people, come up here. You've got to be volunteers. You don't know what you're going to produce yet. Okay, number one, you are an apple grower. You have to stand over here. Number two, you're a dairyman. Number three, you are a teacher. Number four, um, let's see. <laughs> I'm needing an auto mechanic. <laughs> Would you like to be an auto mechanic? What's your name? Carice. Carice, okay, you're the auto mechanic. Um, number five, you are a maker of sweatshirts. No, wait a minute, what's your name? Grant. Grant, I'm going to change it. You're going to be government guy. <laughs> you stand over here on the end, Grant. Okay, what's your name? Danielle. Danielle, you are a maker of sweatshirts. Okay, now, in your imagination, this is the beginning of the workday. Nobody has made anything valuable for New Mexico. They've got nothing in their hands, right? Nothing. They've got nothing valuable. And, and they all have some money. Apple grower, you have a dollar. Dairyman, you have a dollar. Teacher, you have a dollar. Auto mechanic, you have a dollar. Sweatshirt maker, you have a wealthy textile factory. You actually have $13. Okay. Government guy, just a minute. Government guy, you have a calculator. All right, now, okay, now, don't look, <laughs> all right, now I want you all to turn around and spend a day at work, and then I'm going to ask you what you did at the end of your day of work. You say, I grew a hundred apples. I milked 100, no, I milked 10 gallons of, no, 100 gallons of milk. Okay, okay. I taught 30 children to read.
I'm going to tell government guy out loud. Government guy, I want you to take, before the workday starts, I want you to take the money from, take $6 from the sweatshirt lady who has 13 and give one to everybody else, all right? No, you've got to have six ones. Okay, you got six. okay. Just wait a minute. I'll get you past. Okay, turn around now. Apple grower, what did you do for for New Mexico today? I harvested a hundred apples. All right, he made a hundred apples. The economy is a hundred apples richer. Yes. Okay, Dairyman, what did you do today? I milked fifty cows. Hey, everybody's richer today in, in, in Arizona or New Mexico. What did you do, teacher? I taught 30 kids to read. Yay, the economy is richer because children were educated. That's productivity, right? Mechanic, what did you do? I fixed 10 cars. Let's see that tire iron. Oh, yeah, she fixed 10. Yeah, they're cars that are working better. All right. Sweatshirt maker, what did you make? All right, yes, she did. All right, do your task, a government guy, and then I'm going to ask you what you did. Just a minute. You're taking the money from the sweatshirt maker, and you're giving it out to everybody else. Government guy, what did you do today? Gave out money. <laughs> what did you produce for New Mexico? Nothing. Boo. <laughs> That, my friends, is an economic stimulus. <laughs> a society that is productive honors producing things that are valuable to people. All right? All right, thank you, everybody. I'd like my money back, please. <laughs> That's your fee. <laughs> Thank you, government. You know, government guy, I don't know if I had this much money to start out with. <laughs> you know, I should have done, I should have had you put about $5 in your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Do you see what I mean by honoring productivity in the economy? Workers who work at productive tasks, whether they're services, like repairing a car or teaching people, or productive things like growing apples or milking cows, those contribute to the wealth of an economy. That's how an economy becomes wealthy, by people producing. There was nothing before the day started, and then they had these economic goods at the end. Does that make sense? And my little... Well, we'll talk about government later. Okay, um, versus a, a non-productive society... 17, in the middle, the society places little or no value on careers that create and produce goods and services. The society gives honor to those who get something for nothing, like winning the lottery and they become heroes, through luck or through getting paid without working, through retiring. I better not, I better not go on here. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with retirement in general as long as people have productive activities to help others uh, elsewhere, but uh, that's a detour or making a lot of money while producing little of value, or by just getting government handouts, or even those who live by theft and extortion. And the society views economically productive people with dishonor, or guilt, or shame, or envy. Hope for economic progress is mostly focused on getting grants from the government or from other nations, or redistributing wealth from the rich to the poor. And um, 
here, I'm afraid, in a number of um, uh, poor economies in the world, there is continual expectation that more and more money will be given from wealthy countries, which isn't making a society more productive, ultimately. And I'm going to mention a little bit later um, that a number of studies are showing that that the grants given to poor countries end up having the effect of entrenching corrupt rulers in power because the corrupt rulers are the people who are in charge of distributing the money uh, for what they see fit. And that, uh, that doesn't really bring a country out of poverty. Okay, um, let's go over to um, number 21. A productive economy... People think that the purpose of government is to benefit the people as a whole by restraining evil and promoting good, and probably by promoting the economic growth of a nation. But a country that is not productive... Oh, then number 22, a society believes that government work and government power are means to serve the country and the society. Versus number 21... An impoverished country, people think that the purpose of government is to benefit those in power. Um, And then number 22, the society believes that government work and government power are means to enrich oneself and one's family and friends. So, over in the right-hand column, the scriptural verses, Romans 13.4 says about government, says this, The civil authority is God's servant for your good. That is... Government is to do good for the people. If you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath, God's wrath on the wrongdoers. So the government, the government is to punish evil and to do good for the society. And that's what. And First Peter two says it is to uh, uh, reward those, praise those who do good, but to punish those who do wrong. First Peter two. However. If a society believes that getting government office is a means to personal enrichment and a means to gain, then it will damage a society so that it hinders its economic productivity. And um, Samuel warned about this in 1 Samuel 8, 11 to 17. And I'm going to read this passage because Samuel says... This is what will happen when a king gets too much power. And I'm going to say this is the tragic pattern in a number of African countries. Samuel said, this is 1 Samuel 8, 11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take, now listen to this word take, how often it occurs. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And that day you will cry out to the Lord. Now Samuel, a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 12, 3-4, 
He gives himself as an example, rather, of a ruler who didn't take from the people. He says, here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind myself? Testify against me and I'll restore it to you. And they said to Samuel, you have not defrauded or oppressed us or taken anything from anyone's hand. So there's an example of a bad ruler who takes, 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 and a good ruler who is honest and hasn't taken and made the government office a means of personal enrichment. But in number 21, in the middle column, impoverished countries, people think that the purpose of government is to benefit those in power and that, number 22, government work and government power are a means to enrich oneself and one's family and friends. Tragically, that is the pattern um, that has been the pattern in poor nations throughout the world. It was the pattern of the emperor in China that kept people in poverty for centuries. It was the pattern of the Mughal princes who ruled over regions of India for centuries before British rule. It was the pattern of the lords who ruled over the feudal manors and plantations and, and land holdings in Eastern Europe. It was the pattern of, uh, um, uh, uh, sadly, of many uh, African countries. And we, I tore this out of the paper in London in June of last year, the Daily Telegraph. Omar Bongo, president of Gabon, who secured decades in power by exploiting his country's huge oil wealth. Here he died in June of last year at age 73. He considered everything inside the borders of Gabon, the African nation of Gabon, to be his personal property. He elevated corruption to a method of government and became one of the world's richest men. He owned 23 properties in Paris and Nice with a combined value exceeding 125 million pounds would be about $190 million. The American authorities turned up 86 million pounds or $120 million in accounts in New York, and that's probably just, the, the newspaper said, these are probably just the tip of the iceberg. His fortune certainly ran into the hundreds of millions of dollars and may have reached the billions. Why? He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. This is a pattern of African strongmen and African dictators for a number of years, and probably African tribal chieftains before that, who thought that the wealth of the tribe belonged to them and to their family. And so, Landis says, the brightest and best students who come out of African countries and travel to France for advanced education, travel to England for advanced education, travel to the United States and get advanced training, they come back. And do they become doctors? No. Do they become lawyers? No. Do they become engineers and inventors and scientists? No. They all go into one occupation. They work for the government because that's where all the money is. And so it's a tragic pattern um, that unfortunately throughout history has been true of many poor nations. The people believe that government, and people accept it and think, well, if you work for the government, that's the way things go, and that government work is a means to enrich yourself and your friends, and that's what you deserve. Well, following on those cultural patterns, then let's go over to some governmental policies that lead to sustained economic growth in a nation or lead to sustained poverty. Number 23, in a, government, in a, in a nation that leads to sustained economic growth, we have government power limited and significant protection of individual freedom. And in order to limit that power, government power is divided among many parts that check and balance one another so no group or person becomes too powerful. 
So government officials are reasonably compensated, but they don't become wealthy while in office. And corruption in an economically productive country is rare and, when discovered, is quickly punished and publicly exposed. Now, I know that uh, the United States is not perfect in all that it does, but um, I think this is a value that our nation has still protected, so that if it can be shown that government officials have have uh, benefited from economically in a significant way uh, from their office and giving favors in office or something like that, immediately they uh, are ejected from office, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. When this book came out, Business for the Glory of God, in 2003, I had been been asked to do a Bible study for some White House staff people, not cabinet level, but kind of middle level uh, people who were Christians and who were meeting for a Bible study uh, in the White House offices. And um, this book was just coming out, so I said to the fellow who was setting it up, you know, I just have a book that's come out on business. Could I bring 30 copies and uh, hand out uh, copies to the people in the Bible study? He said, how much does it cost? And I said, um, I think it was $13 then. I said, $13. He said, no, I'm sorry, our limit is $10. I said, well, I can get it for six fifty. And he said, all right, you can bring it then. But, you know, that was encouraging to me that there was a limitation on how much people working for government could receive, and it was a limit of $10. Well, you're not going to be corrupted for a $10 gift, let me tell you. And I'm thankful for that, but it's not that way in other nations. There are nations where, uh, where bribery is, is common. So now, um, number 23 in the middle, a government policy that leads to sustained poverty is government controlling most or all aspects of life with detailed regulations and government power concentrated in the hands of one ruler or a small group and the government and their people become wealthy. Now, that's the historical pattern of great high-level government control. Again, the czars in Russia kept Russia in poverty, says Landis. The Mughal princes in India took whatever they wanted from the people and no one could grow in, in economic development. The emperor in China did the same. The feudal lords in Europe did the same. Um, Spain and Portugal in the 16th to 19th century had kings and nobles who took the wealth from the people and had government control of most all aspects of life. And government power was, uh, was excessive with detailed regulations. So that's a historical pattern. I'm going to go down to number 29. Well, no, I'm going to go number 26. Equality before the law is really important. Um, And the principle, of course, is illustrated in the story of David in 2 Samuel 12, where David is the king, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then has Bathsheba's husband murdered, and Nathan the prophet comes to him and rebukes him and says, you are the man, and David, uh, and and he says, God's going to bring judgment on you, and David then is repentant for his sin. But the principle is, there is a law above the king. There is God's law to which the king is subject. And even the king, the most powerful ruler in the land, cannot disobey the higher law of God without consequences. That's the principle. On the other hand, if you have number 26 in the middle, a few people above the law and can violate it without being punished, this makes investment risky and discourages it. So... um, A friend was telling me about his friend who had a successful business in Arizona. It was a a retail store. 
and uh, selling a certain, I think, I don't know if it was a home repair product or a plumbing product or something like that. And then he started another one. And then he started another one. Pretty soon he had six or eight of them. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to set up one in Mexico. So he started one in Mexico, and it grew and it became profitable. And then the government came and took it all away. Do you think he's going to invest in Mexico again? No, because if there are people above the law, not subject to the law, you hinder investment and you hinder economic productivity. And so, um, and then we'll go down to number 29. Another factor that encourages development of wealth is universal literacy within the nation. Universal literacy. That is the number of people who can read. Um, David Landis says, the Protestant Reformation transformed culture this way because Protestant parents taught their children, both boys and girls, to read. Why? They wanted them to read the Bible because of a Protestant conviction of the priesthood of all believers and the ability of all believers to read the Bible for themselves. And so Landis says, in terms of economic productivity, it is impossible to overestimate the value of literate mothers who teach their children to read. Once you have a society where everybody can read, you can read orders, you can read instructions, you can send orders, you can make out bills, and, 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 and you can read about inventions, and you can read new ways of doing things, and all of a sudden, information can be retained and passed on, and it, tremendous, it's a tremendous help to economic productivity. But Landis says in southern Europe, in Italy, Spain, and Portugal, where it was dominated still by Roman Catholicism, there wasn't that value on literacy, and there was economic stagnation as a result. So in 1900, what was the percentage of illiteracy in England? How many people couldn't read? 3%. Probably some immigrants or something like that. But almost everybody could read. 3% illiteracy in England. Italy, 48%. This is in 1900. Spain, 56%. Portugal, 78%. And today, in Muslim nations, Landis says extraordinarily high rates of illiteracy still. Why? A biblical value on reading and literacy leads to economic development. I, um, I can add to this. In the world culture today, it isn't just enough to be literate. You have to speak English. Margaret and I are going next month, oh, actually later this month, to uh, outside of Budapest, Hungary, to a conference from Christian leaders from 40 nations, from Norway and Sweden and England and Poland and Russia and Czechoslovakia and Hungary and Italy and Greece and 40 European nations, Eastern and Western Europe. And you know when they're sitting together in the lunchroom, how do the Swedes talk to the Poles, talk to the Italians, talk to the French, talk to the Germans? There's only one language everybody understands around the world now. Educated people all speak English. And they're all speaking English because that's the only language everybody can communicate in. It's remarkable. But how tragic then when we travel... I mean, it's wonderful when we travel to China and many, many people are speaking English. It's wonderful when we travel to Albania and and, um, only a quarter of the people or 20% of the people need the translation headphones because they can all understand English. But it's tragic when we spend uh, uh, several days in Lima, Peru, and hardly anybody speaks English in Latin America. Why? Well, because that's North American. We don't want to learn that. 
that's just, again, um, condemning children to inability to be as economically productive as they could. So literacy is important, but it's just a fact of the world today that literacy in English is really important. Going over to number 35, I'm going to skip over some more of these. Number 35, an economically productive country has ownership of private property widely dispersed throughout the society and ownership of private property, number 36, easily documented in public records. Now, did I give you another handout, a bibliography? Could you look at that for a moment? Books on economic development. These are just uh, 11 books that I've found very helpful. The first one at the top I've been talking about, David Landis, The Wealth and Poverty of Nations. But I want to talk about the second one for a minute. Hernando de Soto, The Mystery of Capital, Why Capitalism Triumphs in the West and Fails Everywhere Else. Hernando de Soto is an economist from Peru. His offices are in Lima, Peru. And Hernando de Soto did a study of economic development in various countries of the world. And you know what he said? The key to economic development, as far as he can tell, is being able to own property and have a legal title to it. Because once you have a legal title to it, then you can get credit. You can borrow money because the, the lender knows where he can find you. It's at your address. And you can get electricity and you can get um, telephone communications and you can start to grow a business. And DeSoto says, in the United States, for instance, half of the new businesses are started by people taking a second mortgage on their house. The only way you can take a second mortgage on your house is if you own it and you have the document and the public deed, publicly accessible deed that proves that you own it, Right? But what does DeSoto say? In many poor countries of the world, the poor are trapped in poverty because it's impossible to get documented ownership of land or it's impossible to get legal uh, permission to start a business. And as an experiment, DeSoto had some researchers try to get legal permission to register a one-worker garment workshop. Where's my sweatshirt maker? A one, oh, over here. A one-worker garment workshop on the outskirts of, of Lima, Peru. And they decided, we're going to set up this business with one worker, and we're going to register it with the government. Let's see how hard it is. They worked at the registration process six hours a day. It took them 289 days. The cost was, in fees, was $1,231, or 31 times the monthly minimum wage, about three years' salary for a laborer. In other words, it's basically impossible. And then they say, to get legal authorization to build a house on state-owned land took six years and 11 months, requiring 207 administrative steps in 52 government offices. To obtain legal title for that piece of land took 728 steps. They detail similar bureaucratic roadblocks to property ownership in other countries such as Egypt, the Philippines, and Haiti, and they conclude that legal ownership of property or even a small business is effectively impossible for the vast majority of the population in many third world countries. That's people in power using their power to keep everybody else in poverty. By not allowing documented ownership of land, that's why I think the Bible places an emphasis on the value of ownership of property. 
why people could buy and sell land, and the, why the family land returned to the, uh, the family in the year of Jubilee. Um, and in Acts 5, when Paul says, it remained your own, and there were people still owning houses in the, in the New Testament. Versus a non-productive country, number 35 in the middle column, ownership of private property is prohibited. That's communism. That traps people in poverty. Or it's limited to a very small group, feudalism, uh, or in Latin America, to a very small group of wealthy landowners who own all the property and have roadblocks that won't let anybody else own property. Or property is owned by the tribe instead of individual persons. And that traps many African nations in poverty. I had a missionary tell me it's almost impossible in some African countries to to obtain property to build a church because you try to buy some property and it isn't owned by an individual. It's owned by a clan or a tribe. And somebody wants to sell it, but the cousin has a claim on it, the uncle or aunt has a claim on it, or the nephew has a claim on it, and you just can't get clear title. We see that in Arizona. When I drive from my house south on 101 to go to the airport, Margaret and I drove down 101 just a couple of days ago. Off to the right, I have Scottsdale, Arizona, where right now land is about $1 million per acre. And there's residential land and there's commercial land there, and it's, it's just high-value high land. But on the left side of the road is a little bit of cotton growing from sometime, sometimes, and it's often just kind of undeveloped land, wind blowing across it. What is that? That's Indian land. Million dollar an acre value and nobody can buy it or sell it because the tribe owns it. And I'll guarantee you, as long as there is tribal ownership of land, a nation, a people, a culture will be trapped in poverty. It's inevitable. And so if I go east, if I go west from Scottsdale Road, I have Scottsdale, Arizona, incredible wealth. If I go east from Scottsdale Road, I get on the Indian Reservation, and it's tragic. It's heartbreaking. It's broken down houses and broken down cars and incredible poverty because of tribal ownership. And that's, that's another key to Connie's question. Why is Africa so poor? You have tribal ownership rather than individual private property ownership, ease of ability. How long does it take to register... Um, a a business in Australia, I've heard 15 minutes. How long does it take uh, to get ownership of a a title to a land, uh, to to a home here in the United States? Not very long. It's it's a process that's easily doable. And so there's a difference. Um, There's another system where corrupt judiciary will not allow people to get ownership of land. We were in Albania And we had opportunity to meet with the governor of the Bank of Albania, equivalent to our Federal Reserve Board, and then his top lawyer, who's an evangelical Christian, and uh, and one of his other advisors. And then when we were talking with him and talking with some some economics professors, I said to the governor of Albania, I said, Governor Fulani, look, you are the first country north of Greece. You have this beautiful land on the Adriatic Sea, this beautiful coastline, and why, doesn't, why can't you get Marriott or Hilton or Sheraton to come and build some resorts here and get a tourist industry developed in Albania? Because, see, Albania has half the per capita income of Mexico. It's the poorest country in Europe. So why don't you get these, why don't you get these large hotel chains to build a tourist resort and get some tourist, tourism developed with this beautiful coastline? And he said, they can't get clear title to property. 
because prior to World War II, people owned land. Then, uh, during and after World War II, it was run by a communist government that took away everybody's right to property. And then after the communists were overthrown, the uh, reformers chased out the communists and reallocated the property to other people. And then with change of government, there was sometimes a third group of people. And so sometimes on a particular piece of land, you have three different people all saying they own it. And the courts will not resolve it. So you don't have ownership of property. You can't get documented ownership of property. The nation is trapped in poverty. Number 37, the free market. Ooh, I've got to hurry on here. The dominant economic pattern in a productive society is private ownership of property and private ownership of the means of production. Versus socialism, the government owns most of the means of production. Or communism, the government owns or effectively controls all property. Or a tribal system where the tribe controls it. Now, well, let me talk to you about what the market is. The free market. The market is a wonderful mechanism among the human race whereby the products produced for a society constantly adjust to exactly match the products demanded by a society and the price adjusts to show that supply and demand so that what the society demands and what it receives is always balanced out. It's a wonderful mechanism whereby that happens without anybody planning it. Now, this afternoon, I asked, um, I asked Ryan if he would uh, take me to Walgreens because I had some items I wanted to buy at Walgreens. And I just wanted to buy them as kind of an experiment to see if they would have them. I, I had in mind... Oh, let me just get everything here. Yeah, well, I'll just do these. I had in mind that I wanted to buy uh, some lead pencils, just some old-fashioned pencils. I knew I wanted to buy pencils. And I went in, and you know what? They had pencils for me. I didn't even tell them that I was coming. <laughs> and Margaret needed some uh, sugar-free Hall's cough drops. And I wanted to get some milk. So I got a carton of milk. And, you know, kind of on an impulse buy on the way out, I bought some peanut M&Ms. Now, I could go into any Walgreens in the United States. I could go into any 7-Eleven or Circle K store in the United States, and I could find all of those items. How did that happen? Who planned that to happen? See, if you could hover in a helicopter above that Walgreens just down the street, and you could hover there for a week and watch, you'd see night and day, these little delivery trucks coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. They bring just the right number of pencils, they bring the right number of bottles of milk, they bring the right number of Hall's Calls, Hoff Drops, and the right number of M&M's, peanut M&M's, so that when I go in there to buy it, there they are. It's magic. How does it happen? Who tells all those little delivery trucks to come and... There must be some massive government computer saying you've got to deliver seven dozen... Does it? Really? Is it a massive government computer? There is no computer, there's no human being, there's no group of human beings in the world that could figure out that Wayne Groom is going to walk in there and buy a pint of milk on Saturday afternoon. But the market does that. Why? 
because the Walgreens manager on site knows better than anybody else in the world how many pints of milk he's going to need on a Saturday afternoon. How does he know that? Because he's practiced it for years. And he knows in the first Saturday in May, there's going to be this much demand. If he buys too much milk, what happens? It spoils. If he buys too little, I want milk and I don't get it. I go to another store, he loses business. So if he doesn't plan right, he goes out of business. And somebody who can plan better comes along. Somehow, it just happens because the free market gives success to those store managers who can best plan how many pints of milk they have there. Isn't that amazing? The market just works that way. And when you think about it, just think about this little pencil that I bought. Each one costs 16 cents. Do you know that no human being on earth can make this? What I mean is, In order to make this pencil, did the manager at Walgreens say, you know, Wayne Groom's going to need a pencil on May 1st. So on January 1st, I have to send an order to our central headquarters so they could order a certain number of pencils from China, of course. (laughs) And then did the manager of the pencil shop in China say, well, I have to place an order for a little bit of rubber from Malaysia to get Wayne Groom's pencil on May 1st to Walgreens? And I have to get this tin from Peru. And I have to get this yellow paint from the paint factory in Japan. And I have to get this wood from the timber, timber harvesting people in, in Canada. And I have to get this graphite from the graphite mine in Brazil. And you know, that rubber plant in Malaysia, that has to plant a few rubber trees before Wayne Grudem can get this pencil. And it has to have rubber processing plants. And it has to have inventors and scientists and engineers who set up that plant so I can get my pencil. And the tin mine has to be... Has to the tin mine has to have all sorts of earth-moving equipment. And the, and the logging company has to have trucks to... Has to have, have to have heavy equipment to cut down the timber and trucks to get it to the timber mill and then heavy equipment. They have to plan all that just for my pencil. And... Somebody's told me that just to get yellow paint is a significant chemical and engineering and inventive achievement because it has to be paint that children can chew on and not poison themselves and it can't rub off when you, and it has, to, it has to be cheap enough to you know, make a pencil. All for 16 cents! All that earth-moving equipment in the tin mine. In, uh, where, did the, where did I say tin came from? Indonesia or Brazil? I can't remember. Peru! Oh, the tin came from Peru! They got all that earth moving equipment just to give me a pencil for 16 cents? Isn't that amazing how the market works? How God has set up the human race to cooperate so by doing good for others, we do good for ourselves? And all of a sudden, I walk into any Walgreens or any Circle K or any 7 Eleven in the United States and I can buy a lead pencil. Ten of them for $1.60. That's the free market. No planning agency, no central government planning agency can do that. No communist system, no socialist system can do that efficiently. Margaret and I were in 
what is now St. Petersburg, what was then Leningrad, Russia. And I can, I can see still vividly in my mind in the cooler where there was supposed to be fresh milk, the, the women looking, lifting one bottle of milk after another, hoping they could find one that wasn't curdled and sour. And seeing the bare shelves with very little consumer product on it. And the rows of brown coats all in the same style and the same size that nobody wanted to buy in the department store. Central planning can't make the lead pencil that Walgreens can get for me from the free market. Isn't that amazing? Well, an economic system that's productive, number 37, has private ownership of property and private ownership of the means of production. Because ownership, now over in the right column, I say, who owns property in the Bible? Ownership of a nation's property is not the role of government in Scripture. It's to restrain evil, to punish evil, and to reward good. Note the example of evil rulers in 1 Samuel that take and take. Or 1 Kings 21. Note Ahab taking Naboth's vineyard, the king wrongfully taking the property that belonged to individuals. Number 39, the total tax burden is relatively small. Why is that? Where's my government man? Where are you? Government man. What's your name? Grant. Grant. Grant didn't contribute to the productivity of the nation. He took from some and gave to others, but that didn't produce more apples or milk or sweatshirts. It didn't teach any children in the classrooms. Well, I suppose government taxes did teach children, but it didn't repair any cars. So government has a function to restrain evil, the police function, and to have standards of weights and measures. There is a function for government. We need to pay taxes for that, but government is not an efficient producer of wealth. Number 43... Domestic freedom of commerce. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to... Oh, well, in, in Cameroon, there's a story of Robert Guest, the economist editor for Africa. He had a cargo that he was going to deliver uh, 300 miles away. It took, how long would it take to drive 300 miles here in the United States? Don't say three hours. <laughs> Six hours, maybe. Okay, it took him four days. He had to go through 47 roadblocks where people with guns would have boards across the highway with nails sticking up to them, through them. Unless you paid a fine for some alleged violation they'd make up, you couldn't get through. He lost a third of his cargo. It took him four days. Why? Because there's domestic barriers to, to trade, and the government isn't, isn't allowing uh, freedom of commerce, and that, uh, that hinders development. Number 46, an economically productive society has freedom to accumulate wealth. Anyone can accumulate and retain large amounts of wealth by lawful means. Versus, number 46, in poor countries, you get two patterns. One is, wealth is concentrated in the hands of a very few powerful people or families, while the vast majority are trapped in poverty. That's a lot of Latin America. That's also Russia today. That's also Saudi Arabia. That's also Indian reservations. Or wealth is confiscated through punitive tax levels, an unjust court system, an inheritance tax, police threats, or social ostracism. Um, um, There's a prejudice against becoming wealthy in Africa. If your vegetable market in Nairobi begins to grow and you want to expand it, and your neighbors and your cousins and your brothers and sisters hear that you've gained a little money, they demand that you share it with them. And it's thought to be unspiritual to accumulate wealth. And if you're not sharing it with them, you're ostracized. And so people can't grow businesses and develop them. That's a hindrance. Number 47, wealth comes from producing value. That's my apple grower. That's my dairyman. That's my sweatshirt maker. That's my car repair person, my mechanic. 
Wealth is, produced by, is obtained by producing something of value, goods or services. Versus poor nations, wealth is gained from using up resources. Landis says Spain and Portugal were the wealthiest nations in the world in the 15th and 16th centuries because they took gold, 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 and silver from the New World and they just imported it back to Spain and they thought they had it made forever, but they forgot to learn how to make things for themselves. And resource wealth, he says, always runs out. And so the Muslim nations today producing wealth from oil and just depleting their oil resources aren't learning to be productive and to manufacture and create and uh, they'll eventually be impoverished. Number 48, 49, and 50, I'm going to end with this. I've been talking about overcoming poverty in poor nations. I've been talking about developing wealth in nations. These are important factors. But more important than that is putting first things first. And so I want to end with this. The society must count spiritual well-being far more important than material wealth. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And he says, you cannot serve God and money. And number 49, the society counts family and friends and joy in one's life, more important than material wealth. And the society worships and serves God, not money. A society can become wealthy, as I think Japan has done in many ways, but, lose, but not have devotion to the one true God of the Bible and not have the freedom from God to enjoy wealth and then become uh, it, Japan is dominated by a form of Buddhism that makes work into a religion. And so you get workaholic mentality, but families are destroyed, suicide rates are high, and there's a lot of despair, and very little ability to enjoy the wealth that they've given, and very little ability to take rest from work. And so that's a distortion of the opposite nature. And, uh, that, and of course, societies can become enamored with materialism, and many in our society have done that. And of course, it doesn't, apart from God, bring happiness. So I want to close with that. Um, I've got at the bottom, I'm saying natural resources don't determine wealth or poverty. Climate doesn't determine wealth or poverty. Pu- public health is, a, is an accompanying factor, but it's not ultimately the determining factor. Those other factors can affect national wealth or poverty in the short term, But ultimately, it's cultural factors, governmental policies, and economic policies within a nation, within a nation, that lead to sustained economic development or continual poverty. That's just an overview. Thank you very much.